One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say these are unprecedented times in our world, and I sincerely hope the time you spend with this podcast brings you solace in your day. One of the reasons I love talking about literature in all its forms is that it illuminates our human journey and our universal longings. It brings us together and unifies rather than divides. So thank you for tuning in. And as Charles Dickens wrote, have a heart that never hardens, and a temper that never tires, and a touch that never hurts. And I wish for you to be well, be safe, be healthy. Coming up, an interview with Katrin Schumann, author of This Terrible Beauty. Why do I write? Um, especially given that it's it's hard for me, those first drafts, and it it doesn't become fun until I've been working at it for a really long time and I'm in that later editing phase. We'll be back with Katrin Schumann in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last six and a half years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft. It's a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and thought. Whether this is your first listening experience or you are on your 260th episode, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going. 
As our society is changing to independent folks like me producing rich content and meaningful content like that in First Draft, I think we are evolving the model to widely expand the diversity of voices available for the public to tune into. But it takes money, time, equipment, and a lot of heart and sweat to make this content happen. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. As a thank you for joining the First Draft community, I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad-free and pitch-free episodes. As a thank you for your patronage, I get you to the interview faster because you'll get your own dedicated feed without this ask. Starting at just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. I'm also so grateful I often send extra goodies to my patrons. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount, and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice. I know that right now it's unlikely you are in front of a computer, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of, First Draft, reminder, membership matters. Again, patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can find out more about the show at firstdraftwriters.com, and please stay tuned at the end of this episode. I'll offer recommendations on similar episodes you can dig into. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Katrin Schumann, author of the novels This Terrible Beauty and Forgotten Hours, and nonfiction titles The Secret Power of Middle Children and Mothers Need Timeouts Too. Schumann was born in Germany and grew up in London and Brooklyn. Most of her writing explores the search for a sense of belonging. She currently serves as the program coordinator for the Key West Literary Seminar and Workshops. Her novel, This Terrible Beauty, is set in the 1940s and 50s on an island in East Germany and focuses on Bettina, a young woman who marries an older man more out of optimism than true love. This Terrible Beauty opens just as World War II is ending and East Germany is being thrown into totalitarianism. As Bettina's husband, Werner, advances within the ranks of the Stasi, or secret police, she is carrying on a love affair with a writer in a nearby village. When Werner discovers Bettina's illicit love, she is forced to choose between a life in prison or leaving her home, her lover, and her child forever. We began the discussion with Katrin Schumann sharing her real-life history that led her to write this terrible beauty. My parents are German, and I'm German by nationality, and I always wondered about that the sense of responsibility that, that Germans had or have for the war. And I myself felt so removed from um, having any kind of personal responsibility as I didn't live in the country. But I could see that, you know, my parents who had uh, a, a obviously a deep and complicated history um, in that era, um, I kept noodling over these questions of what does it really mean to be a German and what was life really like? And as a as a little girl and as a young woman, um, or as a teenager, my father would tell me he was he was seven at the end of the war, and his father was um, too old to fight, but he had 
been taken by the Russians and just disappeared one day and never came back. He ended up uh, dying in a concentration camp, um, which had been a Nazi concentration camp and then was taken over by the Russians. And so I knew these stories. You know, I, I'd never met my grandfather and I knew my father had grown up without a dad. And he told me very stories about being being a, a little boy in in ravaged, devastated Berlin. But it never really felt that close to me. I always felt a little bit removed from that history. Um, and then as I became uh, a young woman and a writer and really became more interested in both my own family history and the kind of complexities of my family history, I sort of saw how it connected with the larger world. And I, I just became absolutely fascinated by this notion um, around which the book really revolves, which is, what what was it like for the ordinary German citizen who really didn't play much of a role in the war or maybe maybe did play some kind of role, but had to find a way to resurrect their lives and to rebuild their lives and to try to achieve pretty ordinary things that you know most of us can identify with and that most of us want, but that are so much harder to achieve under those particular circumstances. Then you set this on an island, Rügen, which is a little bit removed and maybe a little bit more interesting to write about and envision as a reader than the mainland, because islands just have their own kind of energy in and of themselves, and they're also confined spaces with small populations. Can you talk about choosing Rügen? Because I think you also had a history with it, with an island in your family. That's correct. Yes, I do. Yes, I, I felt that, you know, people who live on an island are a certain kind of people. They're a little bit, as you say, removed from kind of the main communities on a, a on a, a, a um, mainland. And so they they tend to be uh, a little bit more kind of independent and marching to the beat of their own drum, so to speak. Um, and on this island in Rügen, you know, it really is an exceptionally beautiful island. It's a little bit like um, Martha's Vineyard or even Nantucket, something like that, um, where uh, the inhabitants of, of larger cities would go there in the summers and on vacation. It was really a holiday resort of, of sorts, beautiful with clock, chalk cliffs and miles and miles of beaches and so on. And so I was particularly interested in what it would be like to live on this island and to have uh, this, this long history of being stalwart and independent um, and out there on the Baltic Sea, uh, and then to have to live first under fascism uh, and the horror that all of that entailed, even for the for the Germans, um, and then to wait and see who was going to come, you know, who was going to win this war and what was that going to mean um, for their lives. Um, so the, the island setting itself was incredibly important to me. You know, some of the book is also set in Berlin. And of course, as you know, Americans know much more about Berlin and they know about the, a little bit at least about the Berlin Wall. And Berlin is interesting in and of itself, but there've been a lot of stories set in Berlin. Um, you know, as such a big city and a capital of Germany, I felt like that had often been in, in the spotlight. And, you know, I hadn't even really known that there were islands in Germany. So I, I thought that setting it on this island would make that conflict and that contrast um, even more interesting. And as you mentioned, um, I do have family history on that island. My father 
grew up, as I, as I said, in uh, Potsdam, just outside Berlin. And so he used to go on vacation there as a little boy. Uh, and he had stories about going with his aunts and, um, and his mother to the beaches and so on. And all that, of course, um, ground to a halt uh, at, during the war. And then after the war, Rügen just happened to fall behind the Iron Curtain and everything really changed. You know, they, they took away all the land and they moved the property owners um, and the, the farms all became collectivized and uh, it, it became a, a communist, part of communist East Germany. Um, and it's that transition that I found so very interesting. So you had all these ideas in your head, this personal history, this connection, these questions you wanted to explore. Then you have to put it into a plot. Um, you know, obviously this is fiction. So the basic plot is there's a young woman, Bettina. We meet her. She's about 18 and she has a sister and her mother had already died and her father was dying. And it's the very end of World War Two. And we kind of open where she is at a big stadium and about to put, be raped by a Nazi soldier and a neighbor of hers who used to be a customer at her father's fish market named Werner um, mm-hmm. basically saves her. And after that, in the ravages of war, as it was becoming uh, over, they get married. If they fell in love or how long they were in love is a question. And then we we kind of glimpse into their lives as it becomes more of the the DDR. Can you talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about alighting on Bettina and the actual story to explore these questions that you were just talking about? Yes. So I, I, Bettina came to me somewhat fully formed as a character. I, I knew that I, I wanted to tell the story of a, a young woman who is uh, has, a, has a strong personality and she's feisty and she's creative. And I, I wanted to find a way to explore what happens to people like this, but also in particular women like this, in this particular era where they're faced with such uh, such limited choices. You know, they they want the same thing that that uh, many uh, humans want, um, but they they can't have them for various different reasons. And in this case, uh, in Bettina's case, it's the end of the war, and all the men have died. You know, her her town of Zagen on this island is is basically empty of men except older men or, or crippled men. And she meets this this man Vanna, and I I wanted to look at that that turning point where she decides to marry somebody that she doesn't really love because the things that she wants out of life, like a family and a regular home and a, and a, and a happy uh, domestic kind of life seem like she could possibly get that if she marries him. And he seems, you know, he's had this moment of, of uh, heroic action, which is um, really not uh, part of his character. He's not, He's not a person who who is sort of dashing and um, will, will swoop in to save the day. But there is this moment of crisis and he acts in that moment. And so obviously there's there's this tenderness between them because he has saved her um, at, at, a, at a moment of, of potential violence and crisis. So I, I wanted to see what then happens to her under um, under those particular circumstances. And I also was really interested in, in seeing this story unfold from the perspective of somebody like Vanna, not just um, a character like Bettina, uh, you know, a young woman who 
in and of herself doesn't have that much agency, partially because of the culture she's grown up in, but also because of the historical circumstances. But then what happens to a man like Vanna, somebody who is just a an ordinary functionary? You know, he's he's a guy who doesn't have a whole lot of power. He he didn't fight in the war because he had childhood polio, and so he he limps a bit and um he's a little bit older. Um, how does somebody like that get seduced by by power? Um, you know, and, and there was a there was a lot of hope. Some people in East Germany really embraced communism with a great deal of hope um, because they were they saw it as an option for sort of redeeming themselves of this really horrendous past that they had been so wrapped up in. Um, so the plot really grew from that, from looking at what would happen when you have this mismatch between an energetic, you know, and, and, and creative young woman and a man who has, I think, in his heart is a good person, um, but finds his feet and becomes more powerful in a new system that is rapidly evolving into something that is actually oppressive and totalitarian. And that really created the plot for me. Um, unfortunately, I'm a uh, pantser and I don't plan the plot out. It would save me a lot of time and agony if I were better at, at sort of organizing plot. Um, so what happened in this case is is I kind of allowed these characters to interact and I and I saw what happened between them. Do you experience stress when you're writing because you haven't plotted out? And how do you mitigate that? Have you found strategies? Oh, I can tell you, I've tried so many different things. Um, and I've come now to understand that uh, that the way I write is something I cannot really change or control, actually. It, it's, I really only can create a story through the actual act of writing. It's when I'm typing or writing something down that my brain sort of opens up and allows me to see what might happen next. And what, it, what the struggle is with that is that sometimes I go down the wrong path. And while I'm writing, I might have ideas, but the ideas don't necessarily fit into the big picture of the overall story. Um, so I do find that a struggle, actually. I, I find that my first drafts uh, take a long time and there's a lot of uncertainty while I'm writing them. Um, I, I take the wrong road and I, and I develop storylines that end up not serving the overall story. Um, and I think one thing that I have learned now after having written uh, these two books, um, The Forgotten Hours, which came out last year, and now um, This Terrible Beauty, I have learned that I can think in a sort of more general way about my overall themes. And I can come up with a, a driving question for the narrative that is kind of like a, a path that will lead me through the story. And that if I have those, those things before I begin writing, it does help me a little bit. Um, but unfortunately, it's it's a little bit like I'm I'm kind of wandering in the in the in the semi darkness and stumbling into into various objects that are in my way um, and and only finding my path after um, after a lot of effort. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages. 
We'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She was in pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So given everything you said, your story actually has a compelling, fast-moving plot and also tension, which are not necessarily the same things. And some of that, I thought, in my interpretation, a lot of that is based on, on secrets. So as the novel progresses and we learn that Bettina and Werner very tender and fragile bond kind of pulls apart sort of like a cotton candy pulling apart it's just, it's just thin threads that she has a lover and has an affair with someone she has real true love and connection with and so she has that secret but I think Werner also has a secret which is complicated because he is moving up in the Stasi he's getting more um traction and more respect within that secret police but I think as you were saying like he really isn't a bad guy so inside maybe it's not as much of a, of a secret but this tension because I think he wants to be a little different than he is can you talk about those two elements yes that's that's a, a great way of putting it I think Vanna's tragedy is that he wants to be a good husband and he loves Bettina and he wants to be the man that she wants him to be but he cannot do that because she doesn't really love him. And there's something in him that sees this, that recognizes that he can't make her love him. And so that puts him in such a position of weakness. And he's also fundamentally not somebody who, who just comes across as strong or who, who has had, uh, you know, who is a man who is sort of traditional um, striver and, um, and achiever. And so he's, he's kind of torn and he's very tempted by these uh, opportunities that he gets. And he's flattered to be asked to play a role um, of increasing importance and responsibility. But he has to hide that from his wife because he understands that that's not something that she's going to respect. And there's a little side subplot in the in the story that reveals this when one of Bettina's co-workers at the factory is arrested by the secret police. And she just cannot understand what this completely harmless woman could possibly have done. And Vanna is in a, a position where he might be able to find out some information for her. And he's kind of torn in this moment. So I guess that's what I'm really interested in is those particular 
those moments that are small turning points that happen again and again and again when you're given the choice between doing something that you want to do or something that you think is right and yet something and and maybe you make a choice towards something that you're drawn to even if you know that it is wrong um and Bettina of course makes those choices too she she does get herself involved in this this passionate love affair and, and knowing quite well that it's not going to turn out well for her, but it's sort of out of her control. So they are um, they are battling one another in a way with each of their own secrets um, and yet want nothing more than to have their marriage work. Um, but for these personal reasons and also the reasons of the, of the world around them, um, they, they cannot seem to do that. What was it like for you emotionally to dig and research into the Stasi? It was pretty, pretty fascinating um, and also truly, truly horrifying. Um, you know, I, I've, I've been to Germany very many times with my father and I've been to this island, um, Klugen, and I've been to, to Berlin and I've, I've gone to the... Um, the headquarters of the secret police there. And I've been to the, the prison that they have that they ran in Berlin with my father. And I've been to the concentration camps. I mean, any of these experiences where you're you're face to face with what is actually pretty recent history is just I, I, you know so alarming. Um, and in particular, when you know that your own people, you know, as a German, um, people maybe even in your family uh, played some kind of role in, in creating this, this horror. And I think with East Germany, what's particularly interesting is, and, and sort of not as well known as a fact, is that the East Germans were, um, they weren't as sort of, um, you know, violent in a, in a um, obvious, uh, dramatic way as the Nazis were in the war. It's so horrendous, their actions in the, in, in, with the Jews and the concentration camps. I mean, the, the stories are just uh, unbelievable. They, they weren't um, overt in that way, but they had this incredibly strong, subversive, relentless march toward controlling people's lives and screwing with them psychologically. Um, so when they would take people, for example, they would, you know, people who were agitating or they saw them as agitating against the government, they would put them in this prison, Hohenschönhausen, which was hidden in a residential neighborhood in Berlin, and they would basically do psychological torture. So you couldn't necessarily see when these people were then released you couldn't necessarily see scars on them, um, but there were deep, deep psychological scars that they took with them. And that's a little bit of a harder story to tell. Um, and I've read a lot of accounts of, of survivors who struggle to explain what that experience is like because you can't see it from the outside. And it's a little harder to understand what they might've gone through. But I think that is part of what I was interested in exploring with this book too, was that kind of relentless move toward, toward this, this, um, this, this control and this totalitarian state and how an ordinary person could, could not see it coming and yet get 
get caught up in it at the same time. So the rece research was at the, at the same time really interesting um, and also pretty horrifying. Yeah, I mean, it makes the stakes so much higher for anything that happens out of out of sort of the mainstream what is expected of you to be an East German. So so for Bettina to be having this affair with a man whose whose father was a preacher at a church, so there's some, you know, questions about religion. And then yeah. what happens to her is that she is pregnant and has a child. And that both brings her and Werner together and then pulls them apart. Yes. Well what they've both wanted was just an ordinary life. They want kids and they want a normal marriage and a and a, and a, a normal home. And they're not able to do that. And then when she finds that she's pregnant, um, she is torn between what to do about this. I mean, she, where does she go? What, she can't leave him at this point. She feels that she can't leave him. She understands, while not knowing exactly what Van is up to, she understands that he, he has the power to track her down and she has seen glimpses of what he might be capable of if his pride is wounded. And so she tries to make it work with him. And we, we see that as readers, we, we go through that experience with her when she she's just trying to forge ahead and do the right, what she believes is the right thing. Um, and that doesn't work out too well. <laughs> You go back and forth, actually, between this time in the, in the 40s and her in America in the 60s, where she finally gets to and she becomes a photographer and actually a prize winning photographer. And something that struck me about her photography was sort of that her gaze was different when she came to America because of her experience, because she was an immigrant. And I'm wondering if you could talk about this and maybe how that might have affected you as well, since you had moved around a lot as a kid. Yeah, so so with Bettina's photography, that was a way for me to look at how she could communicate, how does she communicate with people and how does she feel connected to them when she has suffered this incredible tragedy. She, she does leave Germany. She leaves her homeland. She doesn't want to. She's left all these things behind. She's in this, this sort of tragic situation where she's uh, completely alone. How does she find her voice? And it's, it's not quite accidental, but she's always been a, a photographer, like a hobby photographer at home. Um, she has her, her father's old Roli, which is a camera that you hold, you know, under, you, you look from above into the viewfinder. So there's no camera between you and the person that you're photographing. And so it, it struck me that, that this would be a way for her to feel connected in a country in which she really feels absolutely alien and where she hasn't actually chosen to, to go there. She's not seeking a better life and freedom. She's going there because she has nowhere else to go. And so her photography is something that she develops almost as a consequence of these, um, these various uh, tragedies that she has to suffer through. And it's a, it ends up being a very good thing for her. I mean, she, she does find a way to uh, reflect on the world around her and what's happening. Um, and in that way, I think she somewhat, she does find her, her voice, but it's not really enough. And so I'm looking at multiple things there. I'm, I, I was interested in how her 
desire to create art wasn't really respected when she was still at home. You know, her husband, Vanna, just, he doesn't understand it. He thinks it's just a foolish hobby. Um, and she doesn't understand it quite herself, her compulsion to, to create art and to take these photographs. And I wanted to see how that developed once she had more support and more time and, and more freedom to explore that part of her life. Um, and I think the reason that really resonates with me is because those are all issues that I think about myself as a writer. Uh, I think about why, you know, why do why do I write? Um, especially given that it's it's hard for me those first drafts, and it it doesn't become fun until I've been working at it for a really long time, and I'm in that later editing phase. So why, when I don't know what the outcome is going to be? why am I willing to spend so much uh, energy and, and time on something um, that really can be quite agonizing? And, um, and I think ultimately it's because we seek through creativity and through art to find some kind of connection with other people. And it's, it's kind of not quite direct connection, you know, because I mean, I connect with my readers who might email me or ask me questions and so on, but I, I know that people who are reading the book are that I've encouraged them to think about the same things that I'm thinking. And I'm hoping that they see the themes that that I was interested in. And I don't know what conclusions they'll draw, but I'm leading them to open their minds and to think about certain things. And I feel that there's power in that. And so in a way, that's my that's my own personal path toward agency and toward having some kind of impact that's a little larger than my immediate circle of family and friends. And for some people, for, for creative people, I think that's often quite important. And I think it's important to me. And that's why I keep keep writing, even though um, even though it can be hard. With Bettina, you know, Werner did not encourage her art. He you know, partly because of just he was in this regimented secret police, he was, you know, potentially informing on other people, even got to the point where she didn't know if if he was informing on her. And then she has this lover, Peter, who is really the opposite. He is an artist. He's a writer. He's a lover. He's got this open heart. He's really willing to be who he is. Um, maybe at the risk of death and imprisonment. And he had deserted his platoon early, you know, in, in the very beginning of the book during World War II. Um, so he's he's in contrast to Werner and, and more alike Bettina. I, I think this is this is the the dream that we have when we dream of finding something, somebody who is the right partner for us. And I use that word partner on purpose, meaning somebody who's sort of on our side, who understands in a deeper way what it is that we're trying to achieve in life and who we really are. And that can sometimes happen by total circumstance, total happenstance, which is how it, how it happens between Bettina and Peter. They meet and they have this kind of instant attraction and connection. And part of it is obviously you know, physical um, and there's no real rhyme or reason to that. But part of it is that they connect on the, on the level of, of their, uh, I was going to say they're artistic endeavors, but with Bettina, it's not even that obvious to her yet. You know, she's still just in the emerging stages of developing a consciousness about 
what it is that she's doing. And he opens that door for her. He allows her to take herself seriously when she's always questioned, why is she why is she taking these pictures? You know, in the beginning of the book, she doesn't even have film. And yet she's drawn to this, um, to this act. And so sometimes if we're lucky through having this communion with another person, they can help us to see who we really are. And for me, that's the sign of, of true love. Um, somebody who, who sees you for who you are and who helps you become more of who you are and an even better person. Um, and for Bettina, that is, uh, that is Peter and is definitely in very stark contrast to not only Vanna, but I think to, you know, to many other men who she might have happened to, to be with. You know, it's, it's not often that we, we um, stumble upon the, the person we're supposed to be with. Unfortunately, she, she does under circumstances that make it impossible for her to, to really be with him. And Peter, I was interested in because Peter really is a, an ordinary German, but he's somebody who fought in the war. You know, he is the bad guy. He was out there killing people for Hitler. And I, I and, and that's the fact I, I don't shy away from, but I also wanted to reveal the human being behind those, some of those soldiers, um, that it's not, um, it's not really a, often, it's not a black and white, good or evil kind of situation. And in Peter's case, I wanted to look at that question. You know, a, a man who, who fights for his country and discovers uh, that it's, it's not a valiant, uh, not a valiant fight and tries to, tries to, create a new and different life and therefore embraces communism and the the tantalizing option of redemption that communism offered since the fascists were arch enemies of the communists. Um, and so Peter is kind of a dreamer and who wants to believe that the world um, is going to be a better place, that in particular East Germany is going to have um, the, the opportunity to be renewed and give birth again to a to a better Germany. Um, and of course, that does not happen, as we all know. I think, too, that Peter was a sort of teacher for her because he didn't have fear in places that she had fear. And he, yeah. in some ways, was more realized with his own sense of spirit and who he was in the world. Um, and he was also... Um, a big influence on her, and and he said the 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 quote to her that became the title of the book. So I wanted to ask you about that. He says to her, um, "All changed, changed utterly. A terrible beauty is born." When he's talking to her, kind of about the human search for meaning, and that is a quote from Yeats. Yeah. So so Peter, first of all, he is a man. So there is an, an element of um, you know. Uh, gender issue here. So he's a single man and, and he um, starts off in, in a position where he assumes more control and power maybe than a woman does, who in certainly in that era uh, was kind of under the thumb of her husband or her parents, you know, or her family in some way. So, so women just in that particular culture at that time um, didn't naturally assume the kind of um, agency that that a man might. So that that's one thing. Um, but then, Bettina, excuse me, um, that, uh, Peter 
as a writer is somebody who's already begun to explore what he wants to say and uh, how he wants to say it. And in that first conversation that they have when they are initially sort of dancing around each other and deciding what to do and where is this going to go and they're just getting to know each other and he tells her that quote, um, that's part of almost the spell that he's casting over her, showing her that being confused and um, and and being drawn in by things that you don't understand is really okay and is part of the human condition. I think that's kind of what he reveals to her in that particular conversation. Um, and I think this terrible beauty, just inherently that that contradiction is very interesting to me. Um, and in the original poem, which is actually about the um, Easter uprising in, um, in Ireland in um, the early 1900s, um, and is looking at the price that we pay for, uh, for, our, our, for fighting for independence, that sort of tragic, that, that on the one hand, fighting for what you believe in is heroic and, and beautiful. And on the other hand, it's unbelievably tragic and, and horrifying because it creates this, it creates war and, and people die. And, but you, but you're, you have to fight. You, you, know, you, you, you can't stop wanting freedom. That's just an impulse that is almost impossible to tamp down. So you're caught in this contradiction. Um, and, and that's what I really love about that particular sentence and that the, the, what then became the title of the book. One of the things that is a line, I think it's a line near that end that you write is hate makes you loyal. Well, one of the things that was really fascinating is that I, I did a fair amount of research on propaganda, and I there there's a wonderful site, and if uh, listeners are interested, they can go to my website, um, katrinschumann.com, and there's a research page there. There's a really incredible site that leads to the German propaganda archives. Uh, in which I read a lot of the five-year plans and then the speeches that were made when the German Democratic Republic was first founded and listening to the vocabulary and the way that they explained what the goals were. And of course, now with, with hindsight, we can read that and we can see how manipulative it is. You know, we, we, we now will look at, at historical propaganda and we'll be like, oh my God, you know, they're, they're trying to persuade the people of, of this country that, um, that these passions that are evoked like hate um, are, are, is actually a good thing and can be turned into something good. Um, at the time, it's difficult to recognize that for what it is, which is manipulative language that that is playing on people's emotions. Um, but I think, you know, given the era that we're living in now and our current political situation, that's something that's good for us to think about even in modern times, you know, how we are persuaded by what we hear over and over and over again, sometimes to slowly uh, be kind of trapped in a certain way of thinking about things. Um, and of course, in my story, then as a man who, who ultimately feels powerless and is seeking power. And so that idea of, of loyalty and, and hatred being positive things and working together is kind of galvanizing. 
Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. Let's have all the oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramont Plus. I have a few other questions about writing, um, but is there are there any other questions you or issues you want to talk about with the book? Well, just one thing that I um, that I felt while I was writing this book was I I feel like we know in this country we kind of know about the Berlin Wall and we understand that East Germany that Germany was split in two and that East Germany became Russian, but we don't really understand uh, what it was like uh, to live through that experience. That's a story that hasn't really been told yet. Um, And for example, most people don't even know that the wall wasn't built until 1961. So there was this period of time, and this is when a lot of the book takes place where it could have gone in different directions. It wasn't clear what was going to end up happening. Germany, you know, we didn't really know whether Germany would be reunited in those early days. And when the East Germans and West Germans still were able to cross the border, there was there was still this hopeful possibility of, of change. Um, and that's something that I felt like telling that story could be really interesting. Can you read a passage from an author that influenced you or speaks to you as a writer? Yes, I'd be happy to do that. Um, And this time I'm going to read something um, that is actually not uh, current. I'm going to read a a short passage from uh, Madame Bovary um, by Gustave Flaubert. He's a French writer who wrote in the 1850s. And this book was very controversial. It was considered to be immoral. Um, And he was writing a a new kind of literature, this sort of literary realism. I read this book when I was uh, a teenager in high school. And even then, it struck a note for me. It it spoke to me in some way, and I didn't quite understand why. Um, And I came back to it later as an adult and felt uh, understood even better why the writing had had spoken to me. So I'm going to read a a little bit from when the main character, Emma Bovary, who's really quite an unlikable, selfish young woman. um, She's married a man she doesn't love. That's kind of uh, coincidental that it reflects my my story a little bit. But she's married this man, Charles, and she's increasingly discovering that her life is not what she was hoping it to be. One day while tidying a drawer in anticipation of her departure, she pricked her fingers on something. It was a piece of wire in her wedding bouquet. The orange blossom buds were yellow with dust and the satin ribbons with their silver piping were fraying at the edges. She threw it into the fire. It flared up more quickly than dry straw. Then it lay on the red bush on the embers, slowly being consumed. She watched it burn. The little cardboard berries burst open, the binding wire twisted, the braid melted, and the shriveled paper petals hovering along the fire back like black butterflies at last flew up away through the chimney. When they left Tost in March, Madame Bovary was pregnant. What I love about that scene, of course, is those um, those descriptions. You know, he, Flaubert really, uh, 
looked closely at everyday life, but I love the way he uses them not only to paint a picture of the era and the setting, but also to reveal something about the situation um, and the characters. Um, and at that point, Madame Bovary is, is Emma has convinced her husband to leave um, in search for a better life in a in a larger city, and um, and that doesn't end up working out the way she hopes it will. And this is a kind of foreshadowing of that by in this quiet moment where she's just watching her wedding bouquet as it um, catches on fire in the fireplace. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Yeah, here I'm going to read a little bit from the very beginning of the book because I find openings incredibly difficult. Um, so I'm, this is a prologue and it's set in Chicago and Illinois in the spring of 1961. There are eight beads, one for every year of her daughter's life. Under Bettina's thumb and forefinger, some of them are rough and some smooth, a few with sharp edges that catch on her skin. They're cheaply made, bright pink and blue and green and yellow like sweets. They hang on the soft leather of her camera strap. Bettina has rolled them between her fingertips so often, hundreds of times, thousands maybe, that each one seems to have its own personality. As she makes her way through them one by one, she falls into a rhythm of thinking, a kind of reassembling of scenes from Annalise's childhood. It's total immersion being steeped in the texture of a regular life, the wondrous light of ordinary moments flooding her mind. First bead. At one year old, Annalise has the full cheeks of a healthy baby, pinkened by sharp sea breezes and her mother's milk. She takes her first faltering steps, and when she succeeds at crossing the threshold from the kitchen to the front room, her gummy smile changes the shape of her face, sparks her eyes into knowing. At two, she loves to torment the cat, yanking his tail until he turns on her, quick to betray the child's trust. Anna's damp fingers grasping at fur, pulling on bone. She doesn't understand yet that she has the power to cause pain. Do you want to say more about that? Yeah, that's a scene I wrote after I had completed my final edit of the book. Um, and I cannot tell you how many different opening scenes I've had for this book. In fact, just the other day, I found a file on my computer of this book and I opened it and I read the first scene and I didn't even recognize it. Um, it you know, I, there's a lot of stabs in the dark to, to get the opening right. And this particular one, um, when I lit upon the idea that this was um, Bettina looking back at something and the reader isn't quite sure why she's doing this and what her exact circumstances are, but I felt that it was a good way to evoke the core desires that Bettina has, which is family and love and connection and to suggest to the reader um, that these are things that she has lost and then to ask themselves, well, why she lost these things and, and how. Where do you write? So I write in my uh, little office in Key West. I'm in Key West most of the year now. Um, and I have a small uh, office that doubles as a guest room that gets blazing sunshine. So it's often boiling hot. Um, but I pull down the curtains and I sit there on a little uh, table and, and that's where I work. And I do, I do like to be completely on my own. I don't like working in cafes. It's just, I get distracted very easily, people watching. And so I, I sequester myself in that, in that little office and, and try to do my writing there. 
And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I actually don't have that problem too much. I'm mostly trying to get to writing. Um, I have a, a, a job now. I work for the Key West Literary Seminar as the program coordinator and for 20 hours a week. And so actually I'm finding that it's, I have to make time to write. Uh, and that's more of an effort than it, than it is to, to get away from writing. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I have some wonderful, trusted readers, um, writers who I have worked with um, before. One is Lynn Griffin, who's the author of uh, a few novels, and she's also a, a writing uh, teacher. And so she's she's a fabulous sounding board um, for me um, and a tough, tough nut to crack. You know, she um, she knows how to give uh great criticism, um, but she also understands what I'm trying to do. And I have another friend from graduate school um, who's also a writer. Um, she writes in a different, uh, entirely different genre. She writes uh, plays and screenplays, but she's a great sounding board. Um, and my agent is always um, an excellent um, set of eyes. How have you dealt with rejection? Rejection is always hard. Uh, and we always, I think, take it personally. I'm not one of these writers who can, uh, you know, just shrug it off and, uh, and not feel disappointed about it. But what I find interesting is that the various rejections I've had over the years and the disappointments that I've weathered haven't actually stopped me from continuing to write. I find that kind of interesting. Like, I don't really understand that compulsion that writers often have to keep going in the face of uh, of these barriers, uh, to keep going when you don't know if you're ever going to um, be able to shape your work into something that actually makes it into the marketplace. Um, so I think I've dealt with rejection by uh, continuing to to plow ahead and um, just trust that that uh, somehow it's going to uh, come to something that is meaningful, whether it's just for me or whether it's for a larger audience. And what is your favorite word? I thought about this uh, for quite a while. And I think that my favorite word right now is empathy. And I think that's a word that is uh, often misunderstood and and it's an interesting um, notion now in particular in, in our current times. Um, I feel that writers, one of the things that we're trying to do is we're, we're trying to see into characters' heads and understand human motivation and why things happen the way they do and whether we have the power to do anything about it. And I don't think that's possible without having a certain amount of empathy. Um, and I think that's where my creative um, impulse comes from is, is being empathetic, even for people who are not, um, not particularly sympathetic uh, on the outside. Well, thank you so much. I so appreciate your time. Thank you, Mitzi. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Katrin Schumann, author of This Terrible Beauty. If you liked today's show, check out my previous interview with Katrin Schumann about her first novel, Forgotten Hours. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 260 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. 
Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Some clips from this month's interviews that patrons will receive as thank yous include an extra 30 minutes collectively of interviews with Sahar Mustafa, Katrin Schumann, and Deb Olin Unferth. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to www.patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Emily Niemans, Anna Solomon, Lori Gottlieb, Vanessa Hua, and more. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy out there, and I hope this podcast makes the time at home more pleasant. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.